Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you who are joining us online. Good morning to our guests, those who are here for the first time. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Um, Today, if you haven't guessed, we are starting a new teaching series. And if you haven't guessed it already, we are talking about power. Um, So we are going to be reflecting on some of our common cultural beliefs about power. But more importantly, we are going to be exploring what the Bible teaches about power. More about that in a minute, but let me just say this. This is going to be a thinking series. Usually every year around this time, October through to Christmas, we do a deep dive, a thinking series. Um, And the goal is to help you to think critically and to think biblically about issues that affect us all. So I want to encourage you during this series to kind of sit forward in your chairs, um, to take lots of notes, to write down questions. And of course, I want to encourage you to do your own research. So we've provided you with some supplemental notes on your way in, uh, for those of you just joining us. For those of us uh, who are joining us online, if you go to thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, uh, you'll be able to download a copy of the the notes for today's message. Um, And I just want to point out, in the notes, I've also written down some suggested resources for you. I've put together an A-list and an almost A-list of things that you can look at uh, to do a bit of a deeper dive into what we're going to be talking about. As well, home group leaders, we're going to be posting some questions today that you can take with you into your home group so you can discuss uh, the content of what we've been talking about. Uh, so, hey, if you've got a Bible handy, uh, whether paper or digital, I want to get you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to park there for today, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, but we're not going to go there right away. Um, this is going to be a lengthy introduction, and it's necessary because of what we're going to be talking about through this series. So I appreciate your patience as we go through the introduction this morning. Uh, But hey, uh, why are we talking about power? Well, let me just say this. This is a timely conversation because whether it's obvious or not, some of our stickiest cultural conversations are rooted in our understanding about power. So what we believe about power, how power works, and what we should do with power. So, for example, you you have probably heard some of the following terms. I won't put them up on screen, but I'll just read them out for you. You may have heard these. Woke, trigger warnings, microaggressions, social justice, critical theory, cancel culture, intersectionality, deconstruction, systemic oppression, identity politics. Do any of these terms sound familiar to anybody this morning? Anyone? Okay. Um, Now, these are fairly common terms that are used now in our cultural conversations. I mean, if you're like me, sometimes you feel like you need a lexicon just to watch television, right? But what many disciples of Jesus don't realize is that behind each of these terms are a set of assumptions and beliefs about power. And these cultural beliefs about power may align or may not align with our biblical beliefs or understanding about power. 
So let me talk about what we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks, okay? We are going to be exploring a number of different topics about power, but each week is going to build on the week before it. So I, I want to encourage you to please stay tuned. If you miss a week, go online and, and, and listen to it because every week is going to build on the week before it. And I am confident that at the end of every week, you're going to be left with questions. You're going to be left feeling a little bit dissatisfied with what we talked about. You're going to say, what about this? And, and have you considered that? And this is because this topic is it's huge. So, so we're not going to cover everything. We're, we're really not going to. We're, more, we're going to be like a, a kind of a rock skipping across an ocean of meaning. And part of this is, is because we're limited to time constraints. Part of this is because the cultural conversation continues to change. Um, and so sometimes what this is going to mean is, is our thinking is going to be incomplete. Uh, but what I'm hoping is this. Friends, I'm hoping is that you will begin to think critically about your assumptions and that you, I would somehow be able to guide us to think biblically about what we believe. Now, if anything can be said about power, it is a sticky subject. Generally, in these polarized times, these conversations about power never end well. Spend 10 minutes on Twitter. You will know what I'm talking about. So I also hope that as, that as a people of faith, as disciples of Jesus, we will be able to have nuanced discussions with each other. I hope that we will be able to walk in humility towards each other as we talk about these things, that we will listen well, that we will seek to understand before we seek to be understood. And, and without, without like dismissing each other or pigeonholing each other into unfair categories. And, and I pray that all of this will be done in love. And I pray that this will all contribute to our growth. So before I dive in, I need help in talking about this. Um, and I want to pray to God that he will help me. And I invite you to pray with me. Can we pray together? Lord, thanks um, that you care a great deal about our world. And you care a great deal about us. And thanks, God, that you um, invite us into truth. You invite us to come to you, the, the well of all truth, the one who personifies truth, and to learn and to grow and discover that we might become more like you. And we might be your agents uh, in the world, reflecting your image. And so, God, we ask you for power this morning. Power to know, power to understand, power to change. And God, I ask for that as well that you would help me as uh, I talk about these important matters. And so we just uh, commit our time to you now together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right. So our starting point today is to ask the question, how did we get to where we are now? What are the roots of our present-day conversations about power? And to answer that, we need to go back to the beginning of where it all started and it's rooted in a movement that is known as postmodernism. So, what is postmodernism? I know this is not everyday language that we like to use. Um, as a matter of fact, we actually explored this together last fall when we talked about different issues about identity. But it's a philosophical movement that began in the late 60s. And it started with some French philosophers, Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, Lyotard, I don't know how to say his name, anyway. Um, and at first, this was a very academic movement. It was very esoteric. It was, this is like kind of out there. It was something that academic philosophers talked about in their hollowed halls, but it didn't really get out into the culture. But then, eventually, over time, it moved from the academy 
into art, into culture, into news, into politics. And it has become so widespread that today it's not, now actually a cultural phenomenon, and we don't even know it. Now, postmodernism is really hard to define. It, they, everybody who talks about it will say this. They say it's really hard to like, create a, a one-sentence definition, what is postmodernism. So the best I can do this morning is to try and, and frame it for us as a mood. And there were three components to this mood. And, and this, this mood marks a change in not only in what we believe, but in how we believe. So let me talk about this mood. Here's the first component. Meaning is perspectival. So, in the, within postmodernism, all truth is a matter of perspective. Um, and this is because my experience of the world is, is basically an interpretation. And because it's my interpretation, that means it's subject to other people's interpretations of the world. So, we all have different interpretations of the world. We all wear different lenses, as it were, when we look at the world. And these lenses that we wear are most often informed by what we would call cultural frameworks. So where we grew up, what we've chosen to watch, where we live, what we read, what our family of origin is like. All these cultural truths, these cultural frameworks, are essentially constructs. Now, what better way to illustrate this idea than through The Little Mermaid? For our Disney fans this morning. Um, so there's a scene, you might know the story. You know, the world's divided between two types of people, those who've watched The Little Mermaid and those who need to watch The Little Mermaid. But anyway, you may have seen this. Uh, Ariel is transformed from a little mermaid into a human being. And she, up on the, up on the earth, right, up on the dry land, uh, she attends a dinner party in the human world. And she sees a fork at the table. And when she looks at the fork, she says to herself, Oh, a dinglehopper. And she immediately begins to comb her hair with it. Now, this wasn't the first time she'd actually seen a fork. She'd actually seen a fork under the sea. It's part of the wreckage of ships that had, that had sunk to the bottom of the sea. And in her under-the-sea kind of culture with her friends, the dinglehopper was actually something that you combed your hair with. It was, it was perfectly normal for her to call, her, call it and to interpret it as a dinglehopper. However, the humans around the table interpreted differently. For them, it was a fork. It wasn't something you put in your hair. It's something that you put in your mouth. You don't do the same. That's, that's kind of gross, right? So what she had was a fork. Now, we can't fault Ariel for her beliefs, right? I mean, for her, it was just a, it was a dinglehopper, right? Her interpretation wasn't wrong. It was her perspective. It was informed by her culture. So, Ariel, you do you, right? That's what we would say. Speak your truth, Ariel. So her interpretation wasn't wrong. It was perspectival. Here's the second one. Here's the second component. Meta-narratives are suspect. So another aspect of the postmodern mood is that meta-narratives are, are basically unbelievable. What's a meta-narrative? Well, it, it's basically a, a big story, something that, that we would use to try and explain the universe, something we'd use to try to explain reality. So postmoderns oppose meta-narratives, especially in any meta-narratives that are trying to use reason to prove their point or to prove their existence. So they'll argue that big stories, just like any other stories, are basically based on faith assumptions. They're not based on reason. Therefore, nobody can make absolute truth claims. And this has led postmoderns to essentially abandon these big stories, these meta-narratives, altogether. Um, and this has led to, uh, well, critiques about science, about ideologies, critiques even about the Bible, about Christianity, because we, in fact, we have a big story, right? Now, this suspicion, it's interesting, it, it's helped to explain why this kind of mood has explained why conspiracy theories are on the rise. 
It explains why flat earthers are, are gaining numbers. It, it explains why post-truth and misinformation are so prevalent in our times. Because postmodernism is, is really a seedbed for questioning these big meta-narratives, these big explanations of reality. Well, let's look at the last component of postmodernism. It's this. Power is knowledge. So the postmodern would say that there is an unbreakable link between knowledge and power. They would say, you know what, knowledge is, is not actually neutral. It's always developed within networks of power. So power and knowledge are somehow inextricably linked. So those with the power get to determine what the truth is. So whether it's a government, whether it's a school, whether it's religion, scientific community, these legitimize what is true, and they do this ultimately through the use of language and discourses, which then spreads through society. It creates, we create social rules. These social rules get kind of embedded in our minds, and eventually it becomes, well, common sense. Therefore, knowledge is power, and power is knowledge. Knowledge is used by the powerful to ultimately control and condition people to conform to society's view. Okay, so, so, so those are the basic three components of postmodernism. Uh, they are undercurrents that ultimately drive our present-day activism. They shape our politics and education, and then they inform our, our current cultural conversations. Now... Something happened in the late 80s and 90s with postmodernism. Postmodernism as a movement was in academia was actually almost dead, right? Because people thought, well, it's so obscure and it's really not going anywhere. But a new wave of thinkers emerged in the social sciences who wanted to apply postmodern theory. And so as a result of that, this, these ideas of postmodernism uh, ultimately mutated. It kind of became like a, like a fast-moving virus. So it went from being this academic, theoretical, declining field of study to being this highly politicized movement of activists. So what began in the, in the social sciences on, 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 on college campuses, it, it basically jumped into Main Street culture, uh, to news, politics, even religion, until it became what we know today as the social justice movement or critical theory. So how did it mutate? How did this happen seemingly almost overnight? Like it just, boom, and within a decade, suddenly this thing was on the scene. Well, critical theory tends to view social relationships primarily in terms of power dynamics. Remember, from postmodernism, power is knowledge, and knowledge is power. So because of that, they tend to divide society into either dominant or marginalized entities. In other words, put simply, there are those who have power and abuse it, and those who don't have power and are abused. And this gets you know, applied primarily to issues of race, gender, sexuality. It's begun to kind of seep into other areas as well, like fat shaming, etc., body types, and all of that. But what's most, understand, most important to understand about this movement is that it was a moral mutation that took place. You know, before, it was once a description of, of what power is or how power is used, but now it's become a prescription of why and how to resist power. So it's shifted from what to ought. And uh, essentially, it's gotten into our cultural conversations and our vernacular to the point that it's just kind of accepted as is. And, and this, is, this is partly because it's been kind of put out there by so many influencers or politicians or celebrities or, or news outlets. 
Now, the general goal of the social justice movement is to resist those with power and privilege. Um, this, is, this is their understanding of the movement. So because, they have, because the powerful and the privileged have organized society to benefit themselves through systems or through structures of power uh, and through the use of knowledge and language, they have to be resisted. Now, it's not to say that the, these unjust structures and systems were created consciously. Sometimes they were actually created unconsciously. So sometimes the privilege are, are, are just, they're just so immersed in the system that they don't even realize what they've done. They don't even realize their privilege. And so because of that, they need to be woken up. But then sometimes the powerful need to be unmasked. They need to be exposed. They need to be taken down. They need to be called out and counseled. And this is what resistance looks like in the social justice movement and in, and in this culture. So, so critical theory, um, on top of all that, because it believes this, okay, so you're starting to get the understanding of kind of how the, this, this framework of thinking works. It also assumes that the powerful and the, the powerless and oppressed have the moral high ground and true knowledge, while those with more power or privilege have much less high ground. In fact, the privileged should not enter into any debates because they have no right to advise the oppressed because of their social location. The privileged don't have that right. And, and I mean, this, this is it's really interesting to see how this kind of gets played out. It's, it's something that's called intersectionality. And, and through intersectionality, there's actually a scale that is starting to be created between those who are more marginalized and oppressed and those who less are and, and why they have a greater voice and why the other ones shouldn't. Um, and, and if we were to apply this in practical reality, you know, if I'm trying to explain this, um, I, I'm, I'm a First Nations person. Um, most of you probably know that. I'm, I'm, my father is Métis. My mother is a Scottish woman, flaming red hair, green eyes. Okay, that's my mother. Um, <clears throat> and on this scale system, my father would have a greater voice than my mother because he's First Nations. However, my mother is also a woman and my father's a man. So maybe she has more power. And, and this is where it gets more difficult is I am half First Nations, I'm half Métis, and my, you know, because of that, and so I therefore have a less of a voice than my dad, and he has more of a voice. And his mother, because she's a woman and she's First Nations, has a greater voice than his father, who has a voice. So you see how this scale is, it kind of works. It, it's, it's kind of intersecting all of these different groupings to determine who has a greater voice and who has a lesser voice. Um, but my friend Dan, my friend Dan, um, blonde hair, blue eyes, bald head, I think he's Norwegian, he has nothing to say, right? He has nothing to say whatsoever. And I tell him that all the time. I say, Dan, you have nothing to say. Don't talk to me. So, so I, I say all that, not, not to poke fun at it, but just to say that this is how the framework has begun to determine what truth is and what knowledge is, who has a right to speak and who doesn't. So because of this, critical theory makes little room for dialogue or questioning its doctrines. Um, it largely ignores rigorous, evidence-based scholarship that doesn't support this belief system. It's actually become almost fundamentalist as a movement. It's, 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 it censors opposition. So if you don't accept the basic doctrine, then you are probably part of the problem. You're part of the oppressive system that's seeking to control knowledge. So if you ask for evidence-based reasoning for their claims, you actually might get pushback. And this is what, uh, largely what we often see on social media or in our, in our cult cultural conversations. Um, and the result is that you might get called out, you might get mobbed, you might get canceled. But it's because 
to enter into a dialogue with somebody in a position of power is to enter into a oppressive system of knowledge. And so why would you do that, right? And so there's a good reason why there's that pushback and that calling out and that counseling. And so because of this, you know, the average person is, is kind of unwilling to just confront it or to talk about it with people because you, don't, you want to avoid the mob. You don't want to get canceled. All right. Now, I want to be fair to critical theory today, this morning. Um, I, I think that within Christianity, and especially like very far-right conservative Christianity, there is this tendency to react to critical theory in the same way that critical theory reacts to, to Christianity and to other belief systems. And our, and our immediate response is just to simply cancel them and to not listen to them and to not pay attention to what they're saying. Um, and so I, I want to be fair to them this morning, and I want to point out just some positive outcomes that I think have resulted because of the emergence of um, critical theory. So first of all, I, I want to say that to some degree, I, I think it has made us more aware of how our words and language can be harmful to people and can even be marginalizing to some people. And I appreciate that. I, I also think, number two, that it's helped to expose some truly corrupt systems that our culture was unwilling to address and that needed to be brought into the light. And everybody was just kind of sitting on their hands and doing nothing about it. So I appreciate that. And finally, I think that God has actually used it as a mirror for the church. That the church has needed to take a good hard look at how its own structures and leaders in positions of powers have caused harm to other people. And it has been a mirror for us to look at and say, whoa, whoa, maybe, maybe we need to clean up our own act. I appreciate that. I do. I really do. But the question is, what do we make of critical theory as followers of Jesus? Well, there's so much to say about this, and we are not going to cover all of it this morning. And in fact, that's what this series is for. But it's enough to say that there are obvious differences between critical theory and Christian thought, and that these shouldn't just be glossed over. So while there is some agreement on the outcomes, okay, there is, it doesn't mean that we believe the same things, because there are fundamental differences in what we understand about the orientation of power and fundamental differences in what we understand about the origins of power. And these differences will result ultimately in significant differences in outcomes. So, this morning, by way of introduction, <laughs> I want us to examine the basic biblical understanding of power. And I just want to talk about the origins. I want to talk about biblical origins. I mean, we've already looked at the origins of critical theories, beliefs, and about power. Now it's time to look at scriptures beliefs about origins of power. Now, the Bible actually has a lot to say about power. And sometimes it talks about it very directly. Sometimes it talks about it very indirectly. But our starting point today, our starting point in this conversation over the next week, six weeks is to talk about uh, and look at creative power. And to do that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. We need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Now that you got your thumb in that part of the Bible, I'm glad you're there. And if you have it handy, I'm going to get you to turn to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read some text from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. And then I'm going to read a little bit from Genesis chapter 2 as well. So I encourage you to follow along. It's going to be on the screen. I'll read. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. And you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's jump to chapter 2 and let's start at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. Down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man... And he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the word of God. So what do we learn from the text that we've read today about creative power? Well, three things. I want to talk about three realities about creative power from the text. Here's the first one. Number one is, is that God is all-powerful. So when you read the first verses of Genesis 1, we kind of skipped over those, but when you read those first verses, it describes God's creative power at work. And, and it describes his creative power as something that's unlimited, something that's unmatched. See, only God has the power to create something out of nothing. It's, it's from the Latin. It's, it's the word that means ex nihilo. It, it means that God makes something. He makes being, creation, out of absolutely nothing. Because in the beginning, there was nothing. There was no, nothing at all that existed. And there's no force in all of the cosmos, in all of creation. There's no force that has this absolute creative power. And of course, the, the, like the scope of God's creative power is limitless. I mean, you, you see this progression taking place as you read through Genesis chapter 1, from light and dark to water and sky and land. Then there's plant life, and then there's animals. And, it, and it's a world that's just, like, it's teeming with creative ingenuity. Aardvarks and armadillos and ostriches and, and orangutans. I mean, there, there's scarlet maple trees and flaming auburn sunsets. Like, the creation is just brilliant. But as you read through these verses... It's the way that God creates that's particularly interesting. You'll notice that God's power isn't asserted. Rather, his power is assumed. Because you see this recurring phrase uh, as you go through the text. The phrase is, let there be. With every step of creation, there's a let there be. 
Let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be plants and, and animals and stars. Let there be. In, in the Hebrew, this is called the Joseph form. And it means that God's creative power is it's not dominating or imposing, but it's rather it's more liberating and life-giving. And there's no hint that God's creative power in the beginning, from the beginning, is evil. It's not coercive. It's not oppressive. In fact, when God looks at the result of his power, what does he say? He says, ah, yeah, it's good. No, ah, it's very good. And, and this marks a fundamental difference between how critical theory sees power and how the Bible sees power. Critical theory has a rather cynical and negative understanding of power. But Genesis teaches us that power is not necessarily evil. God is good. He's completely, perfectly good. And God is also all-powerful. And God utilizes his power to create what is good. Here's a second reality. God has shared his power. So we arrive at verse 26, finally, and, and God's creative power, it kind of changes. You'll notice that in the text. So instead of God saying, let there be, now God says, let us make man in our image. So the verb form in the Hebrew, it actually changes. God's creative power actually becomes more involved. It, it becomes more personal, which shows that, that God is intimately involved in the creation of human beings. See, of all the creatures that God has created, it's only humans that are created in his image. Only humans are formed from the dust of the ground. Only human beings have God breathe his life into their nostrils. And of course, we need only look to biology, right, to, to see just how different human beings are from other creatures. I mean, you'll never find an antelope painting the Mona Lisa. You'll never find a gopher fretting over whether or not they got enough likes on Instagram. We're very, very different creatures than the rest of the planet. And, and it's only with humans... You'll find in the text, it's only with humans that God chooses to share his creative power. you notice that twice it says this. It says it in verse 26, and then it says it again in verse 28. It says that God has given human beings dominion over all the other creatures, over all of his creation. So as his image bearers, human beings have given this power, this creative power, that we are to be its stewards, we are to be its, its, its leaders, as God's representatives, to, to care for it, to, to ultimately to cultivate it. That we have this shared creative power given to us from God over all of his creation. And I think it's really important to point this out. Is that this creative power that we have is a gift. It's, it's not a right. It, it's not something that's seized or taken. It's not something that any people or any people group is, is somehow entitled to. This is a gift that God has given to every single human being. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your social class is, what your education is. Every human being has been given power from God, creative power. And, and then I think that this exposes another fundamental difference between Christian understanding of power and critical theory. Basic power belongs to everyone, and it is a good gift from God. And this is because every human being is created in the image of God. So this means that every human being, as individuals, has dignity, value, purpose. Every human being has been given God's creative power. So it's not derived 
from whether or not you're marginalized or more privileged. It's intrinsic to our nature, who we are by design. It's not extrinsic from our social grouping. Everyone has this power. Here's the third reality. Power is for flourishing. Here's the question. Why did God give human beings this power, this creative power? Well, the answer is found in verse 28. Verse 28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. The answer is that ultimately, God gave human beings power, dominion over the earth for human flourishing. Well, what is human flourishing? Well, when God said to fill the earth, I think he meant much more than just making babies. Making babies doesn't actually require a whole lot of creativity. Well, I suppose you could be creative, right? But it doesn't require it for, in order for it to happen. Anyway, what God had in mind was civilization, not just procreation. This is what theologians will call the cultural mandate. So God not only wants to fill the earth with human species, God wants to fill the earth with human society. And, and this becomes actually more clear when you examine the big God story. If you go all the way to the end, to the book of Revelation, you discover that creation, humanity, begins in a garden, but where does it end up? It ends up in a city. A place of culture, a place of beauty, a place of domestication and, and design. And, and this is where our power is ultimately different from God's creative power. You see, Adam worked in the garden. He did not create it. It's actually only God that can create something from nothing. We, we, nobody has this capacity, right? We only have the capacity to make something from something. So as human beings, we don't create. We like to use that word, I created this. But we actually don't create, we cultivate See, cultivation is when you take raw ingredients of God's creation and you work them and you shape them until ultimately they become something. So we are not creators, we are cultivators. And I so appreciate Andy Crouch's definition of power. He writes about it in his book, Playing God. It's one of our recommended readings. I hope you get a chance to read it. But here's what he has to say. He says, what then is power? He says, may I begin with a deceptively simple definition. Power is the ability to make something of the world. This is our most basic task, preoccupation and quest, to make something of the world that comes with no ready explanation, yet has seemed to nearly every human being to throb with meaning. Creative power, which we all have, is to make something of the world. So like I said, Adam was a gardener, but he was a gardener, he was not a park ranger. What do park rangers do? Park rangers essentially make sure things stay the way they are, but gardeners take what is and they rearrange it. They dig, they prune, uh, they, they nurture so that the garden becomes more fruitful and the garden ultimately becomes more beautiful. We, like Adam, we are gardeners, we are cultivators. And we have been given this tremendous gift of creative power to cultivate God's creation, to make something wonderful so that human beings might flourish. This means then that God has given you his creative power as a cultivator, to make something out of nothing. And that when you do this, you are joining with God in his cultural mandate. You are contributing to human flourishing. You are living out your purpose by design, and you were designed by God to be his image bearer. 
the creator of all things. So when you take some pieces of fabric and, and you sew them together and you make a dress, you are cultivating. You are cultivating when you take raw materials and you colors and you bring them together and you make a painting. You are, you are doing this when you, when you rearrange numbers on a spreadsheet or when you change that diaper for the 15th time today. When you craft the ultimate flat white as a barista or when you piece together thoughts and ideas into a college paper or when you help people navigate their problems to find solutions. When you dig ditches, when you make deals, when you sell insurance, when you do all of these things, you are using your gift of creative power to build a better world for people. What this means is that your work, whatever your work is, has value and meaning and purpose. Your work matters because you are fulfilling God's cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so let me say this today. Your work has value and meaning, so do it well. Do it with excellence as God's image bearers, just as the creator himself would do. I think nobody said it better than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I've read this quote to you once before, but it's so good it's worth repeating. I love what he says. He says this. He said, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, Sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. You are a cultivator. Use your gift of power to lead to human flourishing. Now, you might be asking yourself this morning, and it's a fair question, a fair series of questions. Yeah, Rob, but what about all of the abuses of power that we've seen throughout human history? What about present-day structural power and oppressive systems? And, and hasn't the church often misused its power? I mean, there, there, there are so many instances of where power has not been used appropriately. So how can we say that power is good? Hasn't power's dominion often turned to domination, where people have coerced and manipulated and oppressed? Haven't human beings paved paradise and put up a parking lot? <laughs> well, the problem with a gift is a gift can often be misused or used. Keep in mind that, that we're only in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. There's another chapter yet to come. God's cultural mandate occurs at a point in a moment in time when there is harmony in creation. Everything is working together. There is, there is peace and there is shalom. But then we're going to get to Genesis chapter 3, where humanity decides to usurp their power and rebel against God. And suddenly, as a result of that, there's enmity between human beings and God, and enmity between human beings and each other, and enmity between human beings and, and the creation itself. And corrupt, evil power intrudes into the creation. We're going to get there in the next few weeks. And we're going to discover, of course, that God's solution to corrupt power is ultimately to give up his own power, to empty himself of all deity, to come and dwell among us as a man, and to give his life as a ransom for many, 
And then, of course, to be raised to life in power so that there might be a restoration of power in each and every one of us. But that's where we're going to pick things up next week. We're going to leave it there today. So friends, let me, let me leave with this. Power is a gift from God, a gift that he intends us to steward for human flourishing. How might you use what God has given you to serve others? And how might you invite God into your creative power work? Lots of questions left unanswered, just as promised. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, your word, living, active, sharper than double-edged sword, that intrudes in our lives and causes us to turn ourselves towards you. And Lord, we ask that um, you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds to shape our thinking. That you would renew our minds through your word that we might have the mind of God, the mind of Christ. And God, help us to think about these things this week and help us to use the power that you've given us to glorify you. And give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.